welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is the second in our two-part series on adoption and attachment. Today, Ridgehouse, who ironically went to the same Wichita Middle School as Shay, but didn't know her then. Today, Ridgehouse shares his adoption story and his long path of healing. First, some background info. Ridge got his girlfriend, Rebecca, pregnant when he was 19. They made the difficult decision to give their son up for adoption. Their biological son, named Zach, grew up in Colorado with his adoptive family. But since it was an open adoption, Ridge was part of Zach's life and regularly saw him and his adoptive family. When our story picks up, Ridge is 35, married to another woman, and he has his own biological children with her. And he's about to have his world torn apart. When I hit 35, I was married, I had five other kids, and I got a letter in the mail from the state of Kansas. And they said, we have information that might be of interest to you. Please contact us, uh, and we will share. I just had Thanksgiving dinner with Zach, um, his adoptive mom, and his biological mom, as well as two of my kids. And so we all had Thanksgiving dinner together. So I call the number from the state. It's the Department of Social Services. And the social worker, Tina, says, um, we've received some information. And we've discovered that the birth mother would like to be in touch with you. And immediately my mind goes to Rebecca's ex-birth mother, because I'd just seen her, and we had mutual friends, and so I, uh, I, was, I was really a little confused, because we, we had dinner, we know people, she can get in touch with me if she really wants to, so I didn't understand why she would go through the state to do so. So I asked some questions, uh, I'm doing an internet search to make sure that I'm talking to the right person, this is the right number for this state, you know, this isn't some kind of scam. And once I'm satisfied, Tina says, so would you like your birth mother's information? And I said, oh, hold on. Um, you said my birth mother, you mean Zach's birth mother. Pause. Tina stumbles. She says, well, I, um, no, I mean your birth mother. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not adopted, so I don't understand, you know, what you're asking me. And now I can really you know, pick up the tension in Tina's voice. And she says, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sorry, but I don't know that I should be the first person to tell you this. You're adopted. So I'm 35 and I have, you know, an official from the state who's looking at all of my records and a note from my biological mother that says, here's my information, you know, please give this to him. Wow. Was there any part of you that wasn't surprised? Yeah, there was a small part. I think two things happened simultaneously, uh, you know, as, as quickly as neurons fire. You know, one part of me is like, oh my God, I'm adopted. And the other part of me, the larger part was like, of course I'm adopted. You know, that's just mm. so many things immediately made sense. My connection to my adoptive family, you know, had been non-existent for years. Uh, growing up was challenging. Um, it was challenging in, 
how they decided to parent, how they kind of coped with their own alcoholism and Mm -hmm. abuse and stuff like that. So it was a challenging period to add into the mix that I have this whole different set of genetic characteristics. And it was a, you know, it was an impossible equation. What a bomb drop. Yeah. Wow. I mean, do you remember, I mean, was there anger? Was there sadness or even maybe, I don't know, a teeny bit of relief that that little part of you that knew or what, what what was the emotional landscape after that? Yeah, I think all of those, um, you know, I mean, it's just like a, uh, it's like all of that, um, grief work at once, denial, acceptance, um, you know, anger, like, how can this be, you know, what the fuck came up a lot? Mm-hmm. Um, the, like a persistent question for a period of time was if they were going to be shitty human beings, why would they even choose to adopt? Mm. And then why would this state allow something like this to happen? Mm. You know, if it's in the best interest of the child, how is that, you know, in my best interest? Yeah. Are you on your the phone right away with your adoptive? Well, who you thought were your parents? Parents? Are <laughs> right. you yeah. on the phone immediately saying, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, hello, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, uh, you know, I, I immediately just started crying, and and I and I said to Tina, she was very, she's a lovely human. Uh, I said, I, I'm going to need a minute, and I could tell she's going to need a minute. Um, and I said, let me call you back in 20 minutes. So I, um, I hung up the phone, cried. Uh, my wife had been walking by my office, you know, and she could hear me crying. She knew I was on the phone. You know, she had seen the letter. She had no idea what it was about. I didn't either, obviously. And, um, she came in, you know, and she gives me a hug and she's like, what's wrong? You know, are you okay? And I said, I, just found out that I'm adopted. And um, she's a uh, she's a medical uh, professional. And she said, Oh, well, what's wrong with that? Um, and, and she really meant it from a, you know, adoption seems to be great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, but I immediately called them. And, uh, and I said, Hey, listen, you're, you're the ones to be able to verify this information because the state just said that, uh, I'm adopted. Can you, can you give me any insight into that? And they said, um, we don't know what they're talking about. Uh, what I got immediately from them was the, uh, the facts of my birth, you know, born at this time on this date, this weight, this doctor, this hospital and my, you know, my legal mind was like, if I were cross-examining this person right now, they're lying to me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to get into that. 
And so I said, okay. I said, well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm filing some forms with the state. And in about six weeks, I'm going to have a pile of papers. So if you think there's something important for me to know, now is your time to tell me. And my dad said, um, well, we'll talk to your mom. We'll let you know. Yes. And that was it. Um, the only other time any of that came up again. It's like the ultimate gaslighting. Yeah. You, you get confirmation that you were adopted and they said, oh, actually, no, no, no. I'm just going to keep that lie going. And I think part of it was because they had to believe it for themselves. I had a um, uh, I had a hypnotherapy session several years later, and in that session, a scene from my childhood came back to me. And so we just got to kind of stay in that room and put it into three dimensions. You know, more than just here's what happened. And the therapist was just talking to me about what do you need to let go of, what do you need to hold on to, and. In that dialogue, um, I really came to a point of, I felt bad for them. Because in that moment, in the, in, the, in the scene that I remembered, I asked them to show me my real parents. Because to me, I'm four years old. To me, they have a mask on. And so I can't see them. And I was precocious, intelligent, and... At that point, they decided to say, we don't know what you're talking about. And then that persisted until the end of their lives. And so I feel bad for them because since they had to hold on to that, they never got to know me. They never got to accept all of the ways in which I was not the child they expected to receive. I was not the blank slate. And so I think the gaslighting is on their side to they continue to gaslight themselves yeah i mean did they ever formally say yes you were adopted or is it just something that's not spoken of and just assumed or um the only other time we talked about it my dad had come over we were we were doing some uh, work on the engine you know we were messing around and that was that was his passion he loved tinkering with engines and whatnot so i got him a couple of beers we're under the hood for a couple of hours. And I said, so why didn't you ever tell me? And he looks up. And it's the only time in my life I ever saw him cry. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we were just so proud to have you. And that was the last time anything was said about it. It's hard to even know what to say to that. Yeah. I think it deserves its space, you know, mm-hmm. like for me, it pointed to the level of complexity in any human relationship, but especially this kind of relationship, taking a child from a family, putting that child into another family and and never really knowing what the ingredients are for either family I and mean, who who sees so well, you know, into the future that they can say, oh, this is a great match. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. it's just a highly complex situation. Mm -hmm. What was the psychological aftermath for you? For about two years, I was probably in some kind of depressive state. Um, uh, I was constantly in that tension of, I should have known this. Um, being intelligent, being, you know, analytical in the world. Um, I just thought, I, I, I could not believe that I didn't see it for as much as I had. And then one day I had a, um, another, uh, another friend who was also a late discovery adoptee, you know, those who find out once they're in adult life, you know, if they find out they're adopted, we're, we're called late discovery adoptees, mm -hmm. LDAs. Um, I had another friend talk about how difficult it was for her to trust her intuition because intuitively she felt like something is amiss in the family. And then finding out that she was adopted, she realized that her intuition was right, but no one would confirm it. Mm -hmm. And so she constantly pressed down her intuition until discovery. Yeah. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And yeah, and that made a lot of sense to me too. And so at that point, and this was one of the things that I felt like really started to put me into a, a more of a restorative you know, acceptance state. And it was, oh, my intuition was right. And I need to kind of invite my intuition back into my life and just say, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry I didn't listen. I'm sorry I couldn't listen. I'm sorry no one else would confirm and that I too didn't trust you. And that was, that was really a, it was really a, a profound step. And not one that I would expect, mm -hmm. but it was it was important for me. So for about two years, I really just wanted to put pause, you know, on my life. Don't let the kids grow. Don't let work happen. Like, just dive in and figure out what is all of this. Um, but of course, none of that. Like, you can't. Yeah, no. There's no pause. Yeah. Right? What were some of the other most important issues that you had to work to or, to, or come to some sort of, you know, resolution or or work on the story or you know i think um i think the one of the big questions for me i'd mentioned um just a bit before was why would the state allow you know two alcoholics with a history of them being abused adopt a child and so i had a lot of questions around the rightness of this. And um, I was working with a somatic therapist, and I was asking this question, and this is, this is probably nine years after discovery. And she very gently said, well, listen, Ridge, you get to, um, you get to hold judgment or you get to hold grace. And you you can't do both. 
And so if you want to be judgmental for the kind of parents you had, you can do that. But you can't also hold grace for them at the same time. And it's not a it's not a once for all, you know, and so there are times when I find myself in judgment, you know, why did you lie? Why wouldn't you talk to me about this? Why wouldn't you accept me, you know, as me? Um, what was your own shit that you never dealt with that came out as a parent? And then there are times when I have a lot of grace where it's like, man, you probably did a little bit better than you got, mm-hmm. which may not be saying much, but I didn't have to experience what you had experienced. Yeah. Do you have a sense of like how long that took? What, what more? I'm curious the details of that process going from judgment to grace. And as you said, you can still slip back into it, but it does seems like, seem like that would be just crucial for you for the process of coming to some sort of peace. I, I think that was a, I think that was a brilliant piece of wisdom that accompanied some breath work that mm-hmm. I was doing. So the breath work activated my parasympathetic system. I was able to hear with a different um, tenor. I was able to, uh, and one of the things that I love about breath work particularly is how it releases the adrenals. So I'm not in that hypervigilant fight or flight state. Um, and it just kind of lets the body relax. Um, and I find hypervigilance is something that a lot of adoptees carry. Um, so that adrenal, you know, cortisol response to um, basically is what we would call a trauma response that something happened and they never felt safe after. So then they're constantly in this agitated hypervigilance. So the breath work let me release that. So then I could start to create a different kind of story instead of having experienced the trauma that I did and constantly being in that trauma is happening now. I mean, trauma is always now. I was able to say, you know what? I understand what they did. I understand what was happening and I can create a new kind of sense of narrative for myself as a result. So for me, part of the therapeutic um, release came through a little bit of talk therapy, a little bit of somatic therapy. Mm -hmm. I wonder too, if another topic was sort of identity, because in some ways your identity was blown up, but also there's a chance to really start to figure out who you actually are. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. Um, while I don't, well, I don't want my experience to fall on anybody else. It was, it was a lot of work. It was, it was work, mm-hmm. you know. I, at the same time, feel very fortunate to have supportive, you know, wife, kids, friends, to be able to say, okay, a tornado came through and it devastated, you know, this whole house, mm-hmm. you know, that is my life. What are the bricks that I put back in? What do I build with after this? And so I was given an opportunity that I don't think a lot of people are to rebuild with conscious choice 
and it's pretty amazing. Begin to transition to you know, working, joining the adoption community because you've done some really cool things with your six-word adoption memoir, which you can talk about that, and and men's groups. And I'm wondering how you moved from your individual work to starting to link up with the, the bigger adoptee community. Um, so when I came into when I came into this kind of decision to rebuild, you know, with a little bit more purpose and consciousness. I I had just finished um, as cinematographer on a, a historical recreation film. And, and so I had film in my background, editing, shooting. Um, and I started to think, you know what, maybe I need to pull together the threads of my own narrative. And so I started to reach out to people. Um, first, it was biological family that I had made reunion with in that first year of discovery. Uh, I reached out to them and I started to do some interviews with them. Um, and then I started to reach out to a little bit more distant community. Tina, for example, the social worker, she had um, a uh, superior in, in their office by the name of Marilyn. And Marilyn and I had a couple of conversations and she said, well, there are there are people out there who do search. Uh, there are people who are experts in reunion. You know, I mean, they really facilitate these things. And so here's the name of some people that may be interested in talking to you about the adoption experience. And one of those, um, one of those individuals was a woman named Pam Krosky. Pam sat down. We shot an interview. And as we're wrapping up the interview, Pam says, you may be interested in being at a conference with other adoptees. Uh, because at this point, I had a couple of friends who were adopted, and we had had a conversation. But I didn't, I wasn't a part of a broader kind of adoption community. And I said, oh, well, when is, you know, when is that? And it was, it was actually in Denver mm -hmm. um, in 2011. And this was maybe four or five months after Pam and I were talking and, and so I just kind of set in my mind, I love Denver, you know, like what's not to love about being in Colorado. Um, I get to do some hiking and then I'll spend a couple of days at this conference and I'll just kind of see what this group is all about. And, uh, the conference was amazing. Um, I met with a, a group of male adoptees. I mean, there were probably 50 of us in a room, you know, like we had one three hour workshop together and it was the first time that I had heard men speak about deep emotion, about the experience that they had had, you know, um, in adoption. Several of them were also late discovery adoptees. Um, more were um, what we'd call domestic infant adoption. You know, they were adopted as babies or infants, you know, into a in state, you know, in the United States family. And 
a couple of those guys uh, I really just connected with. You know, we went to go get uh, Burger and Brews, sat, you know, and uh, formed friendships. And one of them lives in L.A. Um, and my film work at that point then took me to L.A. So Brian and I got to hang out. Like, we'd just go get lunch and talk about stuff. That's how I got kind of deeply involved um, within the community. So I spent probably two years, you know, in kind of that depressive state. Um, I saw a therapist, um, which wasn't helpful, but it also wasn't a huge hindrance. It was a lot of talk therapy and stuff that I had gone through before. And the therapist was not adoption competent. You Mm -hmm. know, they hadn't thought about adoption in terms of trauma response. That's an interesting uh, phrase, adoption competent. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. It's like... um, it's like going to see your family practice doctor when you have a specific kind of cancer. Not that I would say adoption is cancer, although arguments can be made, you know, that there are, there are issues, you know, like there are reasons to see somebody who really drills down. do you think therapists who aren't adoption competent, like what are they missing? Like what are the key sort of insights or realities that they don't get? I think there are three things, you know, just off the top of my head. Um, Number one, adoptees really feel a level of comfort when they don't have to explain the foundations of their emotions to another person. So, for example, Mm -hmm. we we go to an adoption conference. I love sitting down with a group of adoptees at the bar. Some drink, some don't. Doesn't matter. But it's a free-form area. And I will watch people new to conferences settle into a place of comfort and safety. Because suddenly, they hear their story coming out of somebody else's mouth. And they realize I don't have to. I don't have to go back and tell this whole backstory as to why that reaction occurred when this person said that thing. Mm-hmm. So, if there's a if there's a therapist who isn't an adoptee or who isn't adoption competent, then I think the just the vibe in the room doesn't put an adoptee at ease, or it makes an adoptee have to explain, you know, themselves. Um, the second thing is that, and I've actually had adoptee friends, you know, go see a therapist and say, you know, I kind of feel tight or traumatized around this. And a a therapist will say, why would you feel traumatized? As if their experience, I mean, it it immediately invalidates their experience. Mm -hmm. Like you had a nice family or... Yeah, right. You're so lucky because you came from some bad circumstance. So that's exactly right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, And that is... uh, that is that is probably 90% of those stories, right? Well, your mother was a drug addict probably and had to give you up, and so you're in a much better con- condition than you would have been. What's wrong with that? So that's the second thing, you know, that, that a therapist may not recognize the level of kind of trauma in play, you know, in, in the adoptee's narrative. Um, and then the third thing is that um, there are certain modalities that just work a bit better. 
Um, and, and, and in my case, talk therapy, while beneficial, wasn't ultimately what led to some profound breakthrough, you know, feelings of resolution. And so if you're in a, if you're in a, if you're with a therapist who, you know, is really doing CBT, maybe that's not going to land, you know, and so then the, the adoptee is just going to be frustrated by the therapy process and they're going to find themselves in basically the same place that they started and then they have to go out and do this again. So yeah. adoption competent therapists are, uh, I mean, they're a buzz phrase for yeah. we who speak in the community openly about this yeah. stuff. It seems that uh, many therapists might not fully understand the, the attachment wound of, right. of adoption because they could think you were adopted as a baby, you have a nice family, you were loved, you didn't have any physical or sexual abuse, you yeah. describe your adoptive parents as loving and kind, and and nothing bad happened to you. So how could you have, you know, probably attachment trauma doesn't even come in the radar yeah. for so many people. Yeah, I think it's well stated. Yeah, Or you know, this other issue um, that you and I talked about before we recorded of sort of conditional versus unconditional love. You know, I think one of the gifts of being a child is that hopefully if your parents are healthy-ish, you know, you can feel unconditional love. And that is just the most powerful thing because, you know, we don't love our spouses unconditionally. Um, there's many things our spouses could do that would end that. But, right. you know, ideally we love our children unconditionally. and But with adoptees, I just wonder if there's just often, if not most always, this deep fear sense wondering, A, do my adoptive parents love me unconditionally or on some level is it conditional? And B, what does that say about the parent or parents who gave me up? Like, what was their love? And if it was unconditional, what does that mean for my situation right now? Yeah, I think that that's a, um, I think that's, Part of the problem of messaging in adoption. I mean, adoption in the United States is a billion-dollar business. For somebody to do a home study, you know, is a certain price. For court filings, is a certain price to have a you know an attorney, you know, who's doing the paperwork. And I mean, so much money, uh, so much money takes place in um, an adoption that there's also marketing, you know, branding. Uh, things like Forever Family are branded to make people feel good about the transaction that just took place and to kind of passively deny that it was a transaction. So there's a couple of phrases, uh, you know, one is that adoption is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, which is not to say in every adoption is this way, but adoption as it's practiced in the United States permanently removes a child from a family and puts that child with another family for a situation that may be temporary. And the second thing is once, and then this goes back to the branding, um, Several agencies will say things like, your biological parents loved you so much, they gave you away. And no one considers that the reductio ad absurdum of that messaging 
is that an adoptee now understands love is relinquishment, mm. which means every time somebody in my adoptive family says they love me, they're going to leave too. Right, whether that's part of uh, an adoptee's conscious thought process or just like in the unconscious sort of feeling in the body, you know, yeah. the, that dread, that recognition. Yeah, so it's really hard to, to say, oh, well, it's unconditional love because now love has all of these other kind of computations and permutations that manage how it's felt, experienced, or expressed. Before this, you sent me an email that had a had an attachment. I think it was an, an article and mentioned you, and there was a quotation in there I just loved. And I wonder if you had some thoughts on this. It's, it's uh, adoptees are always recreating the circumstances of their relinquishment. For me, when I read that line, I was like, "Yeah, I'm always trying to get somebody to give me away again." Still, still, still. Maybe not as much right now. Um, I've had a couple of other life experiences that deepen and broaden, you know, my sense of space in community. Um, you know, one of those was a was a very profound psychedelic experience, um, and another was, uh, which preceded the psychedelic experience, was the loss of my youngest son to suicide. And those were, I mean, that again, it's another. My life has fallen apart. What are the pieces that I pick back up to rebuild with? So both of those um, have put me into uh, a different perspective on things like grief and love and what's important. And what is that perspective now, your perspective on grief and love after those experiences? Um, I always felt like grief was something to be avoided. You know, grief is this, it's in the closet, it's in the alley, it's behind the scenes. We don't really want to see grief. Um, and now I've come to understand that grief, you take in the opportunity for grief anytime you love. And that the size of the grief equals the size of the love. Mm -hmm. And so I see grief as um, a mountain pond, you know, I can look at the surface of the lake and I can see the beauty and the mountains above it and, you know, sun rising, sunset, you know, all of that. And the dead depth of that pond is the amount of grief. So I can love the scene and make space for that loss when, you know, there's no place to continue pouring that love. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a powerful image. Yeah. And then psychedelics, um, I'm a, I I don't think they're for everybody. Um, they're certainly not a panacea, but there is a, a psychedelics for me have communicated a sense of eternalness in every conversation 
and a sense of connection with every person. So it's a broader, longer community than I had thought about before. In your work, um, you know, at the adoption conferences and the men's groups, you know, there are other universals that either male adoptees or just adoptees in general that you see is commonly struggling with and maybe commonly being missed by their loved ones and friends and others. Um, You know, I think the the, uh, experience of adoptees are universal in a lot of ways. Um, Like that a person is an adoptee does not mean that they are more likely or less likely to have this thing or do this thing. However, some research has shown that there are uh, adoptees are more likely to be overrepresented in mental health settings. Um, adoptees, there's one study, it was, a, it was a small study out of Minnesota, but it was adoptees are eight times more likely to attempt suicide. Statistics like that indicate mm-hmm. that adoptees often have a higher risk of addiction, poor relationships, poor identity. Um, and despite the statistics, you might know an adoptee who just sailed through and is perfectly fine. So, mm-hmm. so I hesitate to speak about this in terms of, oh, all adoptees are this way. Nevertheless, um, one of the things that I find with adoptees are uh, they're slow to trust. Um, adoptees uh, often will refer to themselves as chameleons, which is a survival instinct. They'll step into a room. They will brilliantly read where is a safe space for me to be and move in that direction? Or what kind of persona do I need to put on in order to navigate this space without, you know, excessive vulnerability on my part? And I find, uh, I find often that adoptees struggle in long-term relationships. Um, there have been several adoptees and I'm really hesitant again to put some kind of stats around this, but, um, Within, you know, kind of my larger friend group, about 60% of the adoptees who go into reunion lose their spouse in the aftermath, whether the reunion is positive, negative. Reunion with biological parents. Yeah. When they find biological family, 60% of the time, you know. It blows up the marriage. Yeah. And I think a lot of that goes back to identity. Yeah. Because now they've met biological family parts of themselves that they may have um, disregarded or thought unimportant now take on a different level of meaning. And so they're, they're accepting a part of themselves that maybe they hadn't before, mm-hmm. something they had maybe pushed down. And then that interferes with the momentum you know, of the marriage or the partnership. shift to talk about the six-word adoption memoir, that project. Um, as we were talking about this episode, you sent me some links to some videos of people reading their their memoirs, and I'll link to those in the show notes. Those are so powerful. Yeah, thank you. Tell me how that evolved, and, and then I'm really curious to hear your six-word adoption memoir. Yeah, that's, um, 
Yeah, thank you. That was uh, that was and is continues to be a, a very moving, profound work uh, that that me and my um, film partner Derek um, conceptualized. Having been a part of conferences for a while, I was listening to adoptees tell their stories, and I was amazed at both the ways in which they were similar and the points of difference that every person brought in. Being a filmmaker, I was trying to think about a way of serving the community, you know, letting people tell their stories, letting people be witnessed in their experience. And so I went to a conference, and there was a uh, uh, female adoptee filmmaker by the name of Jean Strauss. And, and Jean has a quite the resume. Um, several feature-length films, several short films, four books published, you know, just titan within the community. And, a, and a, just a beautiful soul. So uh, Jean had a filmmaking session where she just talked about making her films. And, and there was a uh, question near the end of it that came up. And somebody said, Jean, you've been doing this for 30 years. What, if you could start over, what would you do differently? And Jean said, I would do more films and shorter films. And then um, there was a, a male on the far side of the room who asked a very technical question. And at this point, I don't remember what the question was, but my ears perked up and, you know, my uh, I shot my glance over and I'm like, that's a filmmaker, you know, and, and I left Gene's session feeling that more films, short films. And I'm like, I got to find out who that guy is. And uh, his name was Derek. Uh, he was meeting his biological father for the first time. This was his first conference. He had never been around another group of male adoptees. And he was from Boston. And so got his number. We went to several other sessions together. And over the next year, we brainstormed, well, what's a way for us to tell more stories, shorter stories with adoptees? And um, I think it was Derek at some point, he mentioned the um, apocryphal Ernest Hemingway, what's the shortest story on record, baby shoes for sale, never worn. And so Derek and I started to think, what if we had adoptees tell their six-word memoir? You know, is that something we can film? You know, that feels like a very tidy space. And... Um, and then we started to think about some of the logistics of film. You know, anytime you're doing like documentary work, um, you've got options. You can attach a camera to a person, follow them home, you know, follow them for two weeks, get a bunch of B-roll, come back, put all that together, cut the clips. And that felt like a lot of work um, for basically a free project. You know, like we were self-funding. This is not a project that we were putting out to get money from people like we just wanted adoption stories told. And so we kind of brainstormed around, well, how do we keep everything local? Um, and so we, we came up with a, kind of the cardboard story. We'd bring somebody in. They would tell us what their six-word adoption memoir was. We'd have them write it on a piece of paper. We would record the writing. We would have a, a B camera set up for, you know, close in, facial expressions, hands moving, creating their thing. And, and I said, and I want these to be under two minutes in length. 
So when I mean, we'll set for a 15 minute interview and, and we'll just cut to the heart of their memoir. And so with those kind of parameters, you know, art is in limitation. Um, we really just kind of lucked into some profound stories and, um, good quality, you know, film that has really touched a lot of people. And tell me about writing yours. Like, did that just spill out of you? Or is that something that you, especially since you're filming other people's, I wonder if you thought, okay, mine's got to be really good or yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Both the process of that. And then, you know, if you're comfortable to share it with us. I was still in the point that I was crying as I watched people tell their stories. And I'd been working with this footage for a year. So it was, it was very moving. Um, and we had a, we had, there was a Colorado filmmaker by the name of David Quint. Um, and he has this brilliant documentary about his father, who's an adoptee. So David is a second generation adoptee where his father had gone back to kind of find his roots in Switzerland, uh, called father unknown. So David was with us and he was like, you know, if you guys want to sit in front of the camera, you know, I'll ask questions. And, um, and so it was really a, uh, it was one of those moments of kismet. David's there, camera's set up, everything is flowing. And he says, do you want to tell your six word memoirs? When I sat down, when I sat down to do mine, you know, I think we had heard 30 people that day tell their stories. Um, all very poignant. Um, I didn't, however, feel any kind of pressure because if my six word memoirs was terrible, I would just cut it out. <laughs> right. You're, you're I, I control the edit. You're yeah. the boss. Yeah, okay. So, um, but really it just, it flowed right out of me um, because immediately my mind went to how my sense of humor was received in my adoptive family and how the first weekend that I spent with my bio dad, how we were just making each other laugh the whole time. And um, so my, my six word adoption memoir at that moment was, um, these people just aren't that funny, <laughs> you know? Wow. I, I love that. There's so much in that. Yeah. These people just aren't that funny. Um, and the beautiful thing about six word adoption memoirs is, um, I have one, I have adoptees reaching out all the time. Uh, you know, they'll see them on Vimeo or on Facebook and they'll just send a, you know, direct message that says, here's my six word adoption memoir. And those can change, mm-hmm. you know, like you get a little bit more life, you put a different frame, you get to make a new memoir. Would have been interesting if you had done six word adoption memoirs, like every six months through this process, you know, therapy yeah. and somatic work and psychedelic session and losing your son and just, you know, as it all unfolded. Yeah. That would have been interesting. You know, Gene said that to me. We we had a chance to talk after Six Word Adoption Memoirs came out and um, I actually spent time with her. She's She lives in um, a kind of remote podunk, literally podunk, Massachusetts. And uh, got to go to her house and just hang out and talk. And she said, you know, Ridge, I'd really like to see you do, you know, a six word memoir kind of every month, you know, just keep talking about this. And I'm like, yeah, that'd that'd be great, Gene. (laughs) 
I don't have the emotional space for that. Yeah. Yeah. Last episode, Shay's adoption story, which was far from ideal. And we heard yours today, far from ideal. I wonder, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up here and thinking about, you know, we've talked a lot about what doesn't go well with adoption and some of the the wounds people have. But what do you think the ideal adoption would look like? You know, if we you know, if we could make it as positive as possible, recognizing that there's always going to be potential for wounding and and issues later, but what would that look like? Do you have a sense? You know, the first thing that comes to mind about the ideal adoption is that we don't. Most of the time, the ideal is family preservation. Agencies get money from the states to facilitate adoptions. What if that money instead went to lower-income individuals so that they could pay for a stroller and get a little bit of assistance to learn how to parent, buy baby food, buy the extras. And so my, you know, my first response is the, the best adoption is the one that doesn't happen. But there are circumstances under which an adoption must happen. And going back to what I'd said earlier about adoption is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Let's build some support around what's problematic. Often we hear the phrase in adoption, the best interest of the child. Frequently how that plays out is what family can give a certain amount of money to make this transaction take place, which negates really the best interest of the child consideration. So, Let's make adoption temporary. Mm. Let's call it a rookie contract, (laughs) right? Mm. Child is in some kind of need. Let's identify, and this is really what the foster system, you know, uh, is kind of in place to do and finds itself also without a a means of support from the state uh, to do it properly. So let's, let's give rookie contracts. Child is in need. That child is matched not to a couple, you know, who has means, but a couple who are capable of addressing what does this child need, you know. So really, let's let's start with the child and make the match on that side, mm-hmm. not have a book of beautiful baby pictures, you know, flipping through and saying, oh, yeah, we'll take that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, agencies um, now, they'll have adoptive parent books, you know, and so they'll give a, uh, a pregnant woman, here are your choices for adoptive parents. Um, and so you kind of get to look, you know, and that was what we experienced, right? Um, we'd had a couple of suggestions. We met with uh, 
a potential adoptive parent couple. And, and that was how we made our decision. But let's get somebody else, you know, involved in that process, not a, not a, not a teenage couple in crisis, you know? Let's get somebody who's actively working for the interests of the child and, and match them to a couple for a limited period of time. Uh, and then let's come back and assess. And let's get some therapy for whatever the situation is in the biological family. And let's get some therapy on, you know, what maybe a, an adoptive couple don't yet know about themselves. You know, sometimes that adoptive couple, they're really interested in being saviors mm. because they don't have a sense of their own identity. So, well, we get to come in and help a child. And that's that can be a little fucked up. So uh, I think there are, I think there are some some pieces that need to be in play that aren't mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, and I would constantly be looking at that temporary problem. You know, if adoption is additive in that you're taking a biological family, a child, you know, uh, that's coming along, and you're adding to that levels of support both for the family and the child, that's great. If it's subtractive, we are taking a child away from here and putting this child over here, then so many things can go wrong. A postscript to Ridge's story. After his adoptive parents died, Ridge's biological mother legally adopted him. And Ridge then left his old name behind, and he became Ridge House, an amalgam of his biological mother and father's names. There's such complexity in this arena of adoption and its highly variable outcomes. And these outcomes, I think, highlight the interplay of nature, nurture, resilience, attachment, and identity. I agree with Ridge that family preservation is the ideal. And yet, in my work, I regularly see patients who are patently unable to care for their children due to severe mental illness, or chronic addiction, or trauma. Adoption should be rare and avoided if possible, and yet, sometimes it's necessary and appropriate. And we need to recognize that attachment and existential wounds are part and parcel of the process of separating a child from the biological parents. I see the ultimate lesson of Shay and Ridge's stories. It's that we need each other at the deepest psycho-spiritual level. We all need to feel unconditionally loved and accepted by someone, most ideally by the parent or parents who raised us, whether biological or adopted. This unconditional love is the protoplasm of secure attachment, and this love and scaffolding is what emboldens and empowers us to go out and make our own way in the world.